to Beauty in the Arts, a podcast where we discuss beauty as the most excellent story of God's love and explore the arts as our witness and participation in that love. I'm your host, Sherry Dragovich, the head of the Beauty and Arts Ministry at St. John Lutheran Church here in Roanoke, Virginia. Welcome to the podcast. All right. So if you listened to last week's episode or last episode, hopefully it's been a week ago, um, you know that we are headed into a new series. We are going to study the book of Ephesians, which is really the letter to the Ephesians, and that's exactly how we're going to study it. We're going to study it as an, a letter, an art form, the art of letter writing, and we're going to look at and try and figure out or see if by studying Ephesians in this artful way, if we learn something new uh, about our life in Christ, our life together as a church, and our life in the kingdom as we study Ephesians as a letter first, not only as a letter, but as a letter first, and see what we discover. All right, so uh, we talked about last week why we're doing this, and, and we discussed it. I gave you several different reasons why. Uh, I wanted to share with you some reasons for studying the Bible in a literary way. According to uh, my literary Bible study, yes, there is such a thing as a literary study Bible. And I own one. Of course I do. And I love it. I have really enjoyed um, the things that I've discovered by looking at the any book of the Bible and studying it first from a literary perspective, from the art form of, of, of its genre, of any particular book's genre. And I want to share with you some of the things that uh, the editors of that study Bible point out in their introduction. So one of the things they say is literary reading, when you read anything literarily, meaning, um, you're concerned with how a writer is embodying his or her content. And here's a little secret. Without literary form, there is no content. It doesn't matter what you are writing. You have to write it in a particular form. And so the form matters first because without the form, there is no content, right? That makes sense. So along these lines, the form leads to the way in the, leads the way in any work. In other words, you cannot understand the greater themes of a story without first understanding the characters, the setting, the plot. You can't really discern the deeper meaning of a poem without first understanding its use of metaphor, images, or figures of speech. So it stands to reason that unless you understand the form of any given book in the Bible, it's how of being written you're not going to understand fully what its content is that it's trying to, to um, express. With this in mind, it is wise and good and critical even, critical to give priority to the form of any written work. That doesn't mean it's the most important thing about that work, but it is the first thing. Specifically, when speaking of literature, that kind of writing that is concerned equally with how it is written as it is with what is written, remember that it is an art form. It is a beauty of expression, craftsmanship, 
of, quote, verbal virtuosity. And these are as valued as the content itself. And so here, here we come to the crux of the matter. The word of God is a literary piece of writing. It is a literary work. We ought to assume that the God who created sunsets and sea creatures, who created ladybugs and African elephants, you ought to assume that this same God cares about how his word was formed and is expressed, its aesthetic value as much as its content. So all of that in mind, I feel like maybe I've, I've beat that like a dead horse. And I apologize if you were on board with me from the very beginning. And now you're like, Sherry, enough already. I'm on board. It's literary and we ought to study it as a literary piece of work. But here's the thing. It's not common knowledge that we would do that. And actually, until I really dove into my life as a writer and began studying the craft of writing, I never really thought about the Bible as a work of literature first. I never really considered uh, how its form influences what its content is and why this would matter. Even if naturally I did, in a lot of ways, looking back, approach the Bible as a literary work. I think just because it's my natural proclivity to do so, uh, I didn't, I didn't think about it, uh, overtly. And until, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, maybe something like that. And, um, I'm not young anymore as a Christian or as a person. (laughs) So I just want to, to say that. And, uh, I do run across, I do find there is resistance to this idea, you know, even within my own church family, other believers outside of uh, my circles of f- friends and faithful brothers and sisters who are also artists and literary writers. I find there's a quite a bit of resistance to this idea of looking at the Bible as uh, the scriptures as literary art forms first and seeing what we would discover from that way. And so there's quite a few fallacies. And I, I pulled this straight out of my literary study Bible too. And I thought I would, I would um, share them with you because I think they're really interesting. I don't ever think of this, but maybe you have concerns about, you know, reading Ephesians from the position as a, as a written letter that uh, you can't even quite express or you don't know, or maybe you do know. And so you're kind of approaching this whole thing with a lot of skepticism. So here's some uh, fallacies about approach, approaching the Bible from a literary lens. One of them is that viewing the Bible as literature betrays a liberal theological bias. Uh, and there's no research to suggest this. My literary study Bible says that surveys of commentators who do literary analysis of the Bible show the same range of viewpoints, conservative to liberal, as any other approach of the scripture. So just as you can just as likely approach the Bible theologically and miss the mark, you can approach it from a, liter, a liberal bias. You can approach the Bible um, in any way. The approach to the Bible isn't where the bias occurs. It's the position and the posture of the one approaching the Bible that counts. So just because you approach the Bible from a literary lens isn't going to automatically assume that a, a liberal bias any more than approaching it from any other perspective. Okay. Number two, 
There is this fallacy that the idea of the Bible as literature is a modern idea. And this is kind of a strange one, given that the various forms we see in the Bible, poetry, lament, apocalypse, proverb, parable, these were all conventions of the cultures of their day. Beyond this, every page of the Bible is full of literary technique, the how of the writing as much as the what. It's just it's just intrinsic to the Bible. It's intrinsic to the way it's written, to, to the writing itself. So um, this idea that it's a modern, a modern thing to approach the Bible this way as literature is, um, well, it's just, it's just not true. So here's another one. To speak of the Bible as literature is to suggest it is fictional. Yikes. So fiction, I, I actually can understand this if you, if you are somebody who says, uh, who thinks of literature as only fiction, do you like to read literature? And then people automatically assume that's fiction. Fiction is a common form of literature, but it isn't an essential ingredient of literature. Any text being labeled as, quote, literary is based on the writer's molding of the material and style. It's regardless of whether the content itself is true or if it's made up. Hopefully that makes sense. All right, another fallacy. To approach the Bible as literature means approaching it only as literature. Now, we just talked about this earlier. The literary approach ought to be the first consideration. This is the argument of especially the editors in my literary study Bible, and I would tend to agree with this, which is why I obviously am doing this here on the podcast. But it's not necessarily the most important consideration. In fact, here's a quote from from my study Bible. They say, any single approach to the Bible by itself is incomplete. A literary approach seeks to complement other approaches, not replace them. The literary forms of the Bible are meant, are the means through which the content is expressed. And this means that literary analysis has a particular priority as the only adequate starting place for other kinds of analysis. So their argument here is that the literary approach is not the only approach that ought to be taken. And in fact, they say no single approach to the Bible is the single approach that ought to be taken. That any any approach to the scripture, to reading the scripture, is incomplete without other approaches along with that. So what they're saying is that and then they go further and they say that this that the literary approach approaching it from its form first and considering that ought to be the first consideration and that any literary analysis ought to have a priority as the only adequate starting place for other kinds of analysis which is actually probably the last thing we do right i bet you have never studied ephesians as a work of literature before i just bet you haven't maybe you have but I, I haven't actually until now. So um, there's something to that. To say that the Bible is literature is to deny its divine inspiration. That's the last fallacy they talk about. It's the last one I care to deal with too. Similar to the first fallacy of liberal bias, the approach isn't the issue here. It's the heart and mindset of the one approaching it, right? So in other words, to say the Bible 
is literature is to somehow deny that it's divinely inspired word of God is um, a little bit, it's just, it's kind of silly. It's the same as saying like to approach the Bible from a literary perspective is to assume a, a liberal bias, right? This it's, this it's the heart of the person approaching it. So here's a quote from, from the editors. If we believe that the inspiration of the Bible by, is by the Holy Spirit, we believe that whatever we find in the Bible is what God wanted us to know and possess. We do not believe in the inspiration of the Bible because of the content we find there. It is actually the other way around. We begin with the premise of inspiration so that whatever is in the Bible is what God, the Holy Spirit, inspired the human authors to compose. Okay, now that that's out of the way, let's talk about the history and the background. I told you in our last episode that this next episode, we would do an overview of Ephesians itself, the book, and look at uh, the different literary aspects of it as a book of, or uh, as a letter in the, as a whole. All right. So first we know that Ephesians is a letter to house churches scattered throughout Ephesus. In other words, so it's meant to be passed around. It's meant to be passed from one house church to the next house church, right? Because right, we're back in the beginning of the, of Christianity where they're, they don't have big buildings yet, right? And the churches and whatnot, they're all meeting in little homes or maybe big homes. I don't, you know, especially in Ephesus, the, um, it was a well, wealthy city. So I know that there were quite a few of the Christians there that were very wealthy. So, but nonetheless, they were meeting at homes. It was also written while Paul was in prison. It's one of his last letters. So it's likely written near the end of his life. Now, this is an important consideration. How might this have shaped the content or shaped how he wrote it? How might it shaped the style of what, of how he wrote? And, and why he focused the way he did. You know, I often think about having conversations with my grandfather when he was near the end of his life. And as he was much, much older compared to having conversations with him when I was, you know, in my teens. And, and they were different. I, I remember thinking how differently he spoke of things and considered things and the slowness of of how he would answer before he answered me when we, when I would ask him a question or even when we talked about books together, we both loved literature and he would let, you know, he would, we would share books. Mostly he shared books with me that I would read and we would talk about them. And his responses to me would change over the years. He was much more uh, thoughtful uh, not that he wasn't a thoughtful man anyway, but I just, I remember over the decades, the way he responded to things changed. And so think about that for Paul. Think about his early letters, maybe versus his later letters, and how how the style and the tone of what he said may have been affected by him being near the end of his life. Now, of course, Paul didn't die of old age. He was uh, killed. He was martyred. But still, he knew when he was near the end of his life. He knew when he was about at the end. And so I can't fathom that this didn't have some effect on how he wrote and what he chose to focus on and how he chose to focus it. Okay, another thing about Ephesians overall. 
John Stott, the great theologian, Bible teacher, calls Ephesians the, quote, gospel of the church. So if the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, we can call Ephesians the good news of the one universal church. Paul spends a lot of time, you'll see, if you haven't read through Ephesians yet, and I encouraged you to do that um, before this episode, you'll see that at least half of the book is focused or much of the book is focused on the good news of being a one church in Jesus Christ, all believers together making the, the church of Christ. The editors of my literary study Bible call Ephesians one of the most Christ-centered books of a Christ-centered New Testament. I thought that was interesting. I'd throw that in there for you. Uh, also, we know that the Ephesians is called an epistle, right? All the New Testament letters are called epistles. And this is just another name for a letter, a typical letter uh, with a greeting, a subject matter, and a closing, right? These are called, the New Testament letters are typically called occasional letters, meaning they were written to address particular occasions to answer certain questions or address a crisis so they're quite specific, really. They aren't general treatises. They aren't long lists, laundry lists of, you know, rules of how to obey and and be a Christian. They are. They do have that, right? But but they they are very specific to their audience, and they're addressing specific needs or sharing specific truths, as you see in Ephesians. We'll get there in a minute. Um. They're also very customary. They follow the very customary style of Greek and Roman letter writing of the same era. They do have some unique features to them, though. So the salutation to Paul's letters, to the New Testament letters, is very theologically charged, right? That open, They all open with this grace and peace to you from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then some variation of that. Um, so they've got that grace and peace formula to it that you're not going to obviously see in Greek and Roman letters of that era. The body of the letter is specific, uh, to moral and religious issues. So that's unique about them. Also unique are the addition of the thanksgivings in them. They're consisting of liturgically formulated statements. I did not make this up. I'm, I'm getting this from my, <laughs> I did not make up this language. I just want to tell you that. Uh, I, I'm borrowing this from the editors of the study Bible that, I, that I'm pulling from for this um, series. Liturgically formulated statements of thanks and praise for spiritual blessings. Okay. And, you know, we do we do, you do hear a lot of Paul's writings. I mean, they make up so much a part of our liturgy in our church worship services and in our prayers and in our, um, you know, um, colics that uh, they sound, it's funny because it's almost hard to read them as letters first we read them and recognize them if we go to a liturgical church at least as so much of it as um prayers that we pray and parts of our liturgy that we say and uh so it's hard to reverse our brain sometimes i think to read them as a to read it as a letter first but paul's very specific in doing this we'll we'll get to that in a minute he has a reason for 
for writing his in the manner that he is writing in. Um, and so, and then we have the paranasis or the instruction composed of lists of virtues and vices or moral commands. So these are the commonalities that are the unique things that are common within the New Testament letters that um, kind of go break the norm of Greek and Roman letter writing of the same era. But so much of the conventions are the same. All right, let's talk about Ephesus for a little bit. So Ephesus is uh, present-day Turkey. It was a port city. It sat on the coast with sea connections to both the Aegean and the Mediterranean seas. And so you can imagine it was this thriving urban center. It was incredibly wealthy. And uh, we know that the temple of Artemis was located there. And this temple was considered one of the ancient seven ancient wonders of the world. Artemis in Latin is Diana, so is the Diana, goddess of Diana. She was a fertility goddess. Of course she was. Uh, and we also know that idol making in Ephesus was a huge business, right? We know this because of Acts 19, that it was a big business for the local silversmiths. Remember, they get so angry at Paul because... They're losing customers that are converting to Christianity, and so they're therefore no longer in, indulging or engaging in idol worship. And you have to think about that. I mean, it had to be some massive number of people converting to Christianity in order for the silversmiths to be losing that much business that their their very uh, trade was in jeopardy of being demolished because they couldn't make any more money because people weren't buying their idols. That's a lot of people. So Christianity was just blooming, just, you know, must have really been taking off and and must have been uh, very retaining their numbers, so to speak, I guess, uh, remaining in the faith, uh, partly because... Uh, well, we see these silversmiths are so angry about this. Now, it could have been like a one-time thing, and eventually, you know, they get back to making business. But you also see in, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians at the end of his life, he doesn't, this is something we'll talk about, maybe I'll just jump in and say it here, there's no reprimand to these people. He does, in most of his letters, he has some reprimands for them. He has some correction to give them. In some cases, it's really harsh and it's like, ouch, that hurts. But he does not have any reprimand to give the, the church in Ephesians, any of those people. They are, they are being faithful, earnest believers. And so his words to them are simply um, just a further ex exhortation and, and then also teaching them of their life in Christ through the one church. Uh, let's see. And we also know that the conversions crossed all economic and ethic, ethnic boundaries. Paul directly addresses the masters toward the end of his letter of Ephesians. But the, the message of, of Christianity and the conversion of people to, of the Gentiles or the Roman citizens to uh, Christianity crossed all ethnic and economic boundaries. We have slaves and free men and women. We have wealthy people and poor people, um, men and women, all across the board, uh, people are being converted to Christianity. So those are some of the things that are specific to 
the place of Ephesus at the time that I think are important to when you're thinking about reading this letter as a, a literary art form um, to cons- take all of those things into consideration, right? It would be the same as if we were reading a story and you take into consideration the setting, the plot, not the plot first, but the setting, the historical time and place and the characters and what they're like and how they're formed by their place, right? It's, it's essential to understanding the whole form itself. All right, let's look at some of the features of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians as a whole, all right? This is the last thing we're going to look at today. And then next week, we'll get into uh, the specific letter itself. So it's a fairly classic Pauline-style letter. It's got that exuberant grace and peace opening with thanksgiving to the Lord, which follows. The body of the letter itself is part exposition, as I mentioned earlier. So it's a discourse or an explanation, and it's part exhortation. So the first half of the letter, Paul is explaining uh, things to the church at Ephesus about who they are and how they have the grace that they have, who they were before Christ, who they are now after Christ. And then the second part of the letter is an exhortation. So... um, you know, exhorting them how to live now that they are in Christ. And then, of course, it has this final closing or final greetings, as it's often called. The exposition part takes up chapters one through three, and they are a recounting of the Father's saving work through his Son and the resulting formation and unity of the church through the power of the Holy Spirit, which he gives us. So you see from the beginning in Ephesians, we'll get into this next next time, this triune movement, this tri trinity, um, Paul's continual mention and bringing in of the, of the trinity. And it's almost like he does it in this beautiful movement forward. I, I love it. I, I'm excited to talk about it in our next... Um, our next podcast, but very Trinitarian focused and then moving that from there into the resulting formation of the church and the unity of the church through the power of the spirit. Then the exhortation part of Ephesians of the letter chapters four through six is exactly that. It's answering the question, the the famous Francis Schaeffer question. If you've heard me at all at church, you know, I love this question. How then shall we live? What is to be our proper response to such a wondrous gift as the Father has lavished upon us? Stylistically, the letter is full of long sentences, even for Paul. So now, interestingly, as I was reading and studying, uh, preparing for Ephesians, I read that this is one of the arguments that some theologians have made in questioning Paul as the author which I found fascinating. I'd never even thought that Paul was not the author. It sounds so much like him. But but I guess there is some argument or some folks, maybe I think they just want to be contrarian, but I, I don't know, uh, that have questioned that Paul's the author because some of the sentences are so long. It's uncharacteristically long. But the other... Uh, well, and we'll get more to that in a minute. The other... Oh, no. Another reason that they have said that... Um, made arguments questioning Paul's authorship is that the whole letter is positive throughout, which, which is also a little funny because uh, basically they're like, oh, Paul's way more contrarian than this normally. He's kind of, you know, he's just argumentative. And, um, and there's no reprimands in Ephesians, like I mentioned earlier. 
also they've pointed to that Ephesians is more generalized in its content compared to the other letters of the New Testament, that nothing specific is mentioned with regards to people or situations. But I find these are all, uh, there's overwhelming evidence to suggest that this letter is from Paul. So first of all, it says so in the beginning, right? Paul addresses the Ephesians and announces who he is writing the letter. And as far as this more generalized content, I think this is answered just by the idea that the, the, the letter was meant to be passed from house church to house church to house church throughout the province, right? And um, again, w- with uh, the, the idea in mind that these were house churches scattered about and who really desperately needed to hear of their unity as one church, even though they were many little places, they are part of one great church in Christ Jesus. Also, another thing that we mentioned earlier in the podcast in this episode is that Paul's near the end of his life. So his focus is probably really dialed in. He has nothing to reprimand them with, and he wants to focus on the basics. He wants to focus on Christ, the unity of believers in Christ through the Holy Spirit in the one church, and how to live faithfully within this context as one church united. Like I said, even though they're scattered into these small units. Also, Paul does use long sentences in most all his letters, so I'm not really sure what they're talking about. This isn't anything really new. Some of these sentences are really long. I mean, really long. We'll get into that in future episodes. But uh, he does tend to, to have these gangly, odd, awkward sentences that I think I mentioned in the last episode. He gets a lot of... Um, Oh, he takes a lot of heat for, um, and people like to joke about it. And I do too, because, you know, nowadays in modern writing, like, you know, I, I've had somebody tell me this before in my writing, I've, I've been criticized for this. Like you can love the period periods are good things. And so it's like, you'd want to tell Paul, you know, Paul, you can find and use a period every now and again, it's a good thing. (laughs) but I think Paul has a a good reason for his long sentences, unlike me sometimes. Uh, Paul also uses all these classic transition statements we see across all of his letters. Therefore, for this reason, and these are are common Pauline um, iterations of how he moves his readers through his content. And finally... This letter is classic Pauline style of exposition, explaining something followed by an exhortation. How then shall we live? All right. Some of the literary intentions of Ephesians. Oh, I forgot we were going to talk about this. That's right. Let's talk about these literary intentions. What is a literary intentions? What's the difference between a literary intention and a literary device? A literary intention are those things that the writer is purposing to achieve, that he wants, he or she wants to achieve through a literary means. A literary device is the tool the writer uses to achieve his or her purpose. All right? So some of of Paul's literary intentions are, are the following. So first he wants to celebrate. He's He wants a celebration of the sovereign grace of God in Christ. He wants to name or catalog the blessings 
And he doesn't just name them as a list or catalog them as a list, right? But he wants to use a lyrical, beautiful style of of this cataloging that's meant to inspire his readers to glorify the triune God. So his purpose in cataloging isn't just to like list them for our knowledge. It's, it's to write them in such a way that we are moved to glorify the Lord in our own worship. He also has the intention literarily of expanding people's minds through an exaltation in Christ's power and surpassing love. He wants to model the vocabulary and the passionate sentiment that ought to be the character of our praise and prayer in the church and of the church, right? So we have all these, we have more intentions, but just let me pause here. And do you see this? So it's how he's writing. He is purposefully writing in such a way to help model the vocabulary, to help expand people's minds through an exaltation in Christ's power, to catalog the blessings of living in Christ, but using a lyrical style meant to help us to move us into worship. All right. He's also exhorting his Gentile and Jewish Christians, uh, fellow believers, to live in unity and the reconciliation they have in Christ. Another literary intention he has is to compare and contrast our old life of sin with the new life of love and unity. There's a particular way he wants to do that. It's a it's a uh, this comparison and contrasting. He wants to show believers, not just tell them, but show them how to walk in the way pleasing to God, using a particular literary style and techniques in order to show and not just tell. And finally, oh, not quite finally, but uh, also a big one, to use extended metaphors to build the, of the building of a body and of marriage and also of armor to describe the Christian community and equip believers for spiritual warfare. Now, this one was a little um, confusing to me personally, and maybe it is to you too, because we typically think of metaphors as a literary tool or device that writers use, not necessarily as a literary intention um, to help achieve a, a literary means, right? To help achieve his purpose in writing. But okay, and I don't quite have this figured out, but I'm going to try it on for size here. Um, by calling by calling these extended metaphors a literary intention. We see here that Paul is using the metaphor for the expressed purpose of giving, offering his readers these powerful images, images that not just the Ephesians use, but we've used throughout history now in, in, our Christi- in Christianity, powerful images for helping them and us to understand the true nature of their oneness in Christ, Right? We talk about the body of believers. We that we use that language, the body of believers. Uh, also, building and Christ is our cornerstone, the foundation, right? And how they are to function and live out that oneness in the church as a marriage, as a body, as a building. And then the same holds true with regards to Paul's image of the Christian armor, equipping them for spiritual warfare, to put on Christ, to put on the weapons of our faith as an armor, the armor of God, right? This classic uh, literary imaging imagery that we, that we use to help us embolden and strengthen our faith. 
All right. And finally, as we go through Ephesians, I will do my best to continually recall this list of intentions. I know because it sounds a little um, ephemeral right now just to go through them outside of actual examples and looking at the book. But so as we go through it, I will do my best to, to go back to this list of intentions so we can examine how Paul achieves what it is he's intending and what literary devices he's using, how his sentence structure, his imagery, his flow of ideas develop and help support his purposes. All right. Woo. All right. <laughs> that was a lot, I think, just for an introduction and an overview of Ephesians. We haven't even really gotten into the content yet. But I, I hope you've enjoyed hearing more about the literariness of the Bible and in particular of, of Ephesians. I thought I just really wanted to share with you some of those uh, things that I learned by reading my study Bible my literary study Bible. I wanted to share them with you. Uh, But maybe your head hurts a little right now trying to take it all in. That's okay. I get it. Mine hurts a little bit right now too. Uh, And I love thinking about these things. So in our next episode, we'll dive into Ephesians. We're not going to go by chapters because there were no chapters when Paul was writing the letters. He did not write by chapters. He wrote by themes and he wrote, he was writing a letter. So that wouldn't be in keeping with the letter form. Uh, rather, we're going to cover the letter according to its its big ideas, its themes, as Paul presents them. As we go through the themes, we'll also be looking to see if there is a movement of the letter, almost like a story arc. And if there is, what does a story arc look like? How does it help us as readers live in, enter into that story, enter into the movement? How does it help us to live out the story Paul is expressing to his Ephesus readers and to us? through his letters. So if you haven't read through Ephesians yet, I commend it to you. It's a helpful for getting a sense of Paul's literary style. If you have read through Ephesians and you want to be ready for our next discussion, I highly recommend you read chapters 1 through 2 verse 10. So read up from the beginning up to chapter 2 verse 10. All right, that's all I have for this episode. I think that's plenty. So until we meet again here on Beauty in the Arts, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace.